Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 109. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. It's Thursday, July 2nd. We are ahead of the 4th of July weekend, which is nice. It's going to be a little bit different this year. It's going to be staying at home for a lot of people, but still some time hopefully outside uh, and maybe even enjoying a few nice beers along the way. And it brings the start of summer camp, as they're calling it, in Major League Baseball. I'm still not locked into that name, but frankly, among the things I care about, that's near the bottom of the list right now. So I'm not going to expend a lot of energy uh, stressing out about that. Uh, how's it going for you on this Thursday, you know? It's good. It's good. Uh, the wife has a four-day weekend, so hopefully she'll relieve some of the stress that she's had. She's doing like three jobs at work. And I'm uh, going to go shopping today for grill stuff. I might, You know, my grill is broken. That and seems like bad timing to have really a broken grill. Really bad timing. And the thing that's weird is it's like, it's like normally when there's no gas, the, 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 you know, the lighter still clicks. It goes click, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. And now the lighter's not clicking. And it's so funny because my wife is always like, that thing's so dirty. This thing's so dirty. And I'm like, whatever. It's a grill. You know, like I clean it. I try to clean it. And then this time she was like, it's not working because it's dirty. And at first I was like, you're wrong. I know my grill. <laughs> and then she was like, she she like paused for a second. I mean, she's like, well, wasn't there like a lot of fire the last time you did it? Wasn't there like a lot of uh, stuff falling down? Couldn't that just have clogged up the either the lighter or the gas part? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. that's on the to-do list for today after this podcast all right clean the grill well on this episode we got an injury update to get to we've got a few other il moves that are pretty unique i think to this 2020 season and we're going to talk about the pitcher list mock that we were a part of on wednesday talk about some of the things that really stood out to us going through an actual draft again which has been you know, something we haven't done in Three months, so uh, kind of fun to get back into that and to see some of the things that have changed as everyone's adjusting to the shortened season, larger rosters, universal DH, all the things we've been talking about for the last few weeks, seeing how it played out in a draft was actually a lot of fun. Uh, let's start with the injury updates. We saw this one roll through just as we were about to start recording. The Cubs announced that Jose Quintana had surgery to repair a lacerated digital sensory nerve in his left thumb. Um, I think digital as in finger, not digital like electronics. Uh, oh my God. Resume. He's a robot. <laughs> he's, not, he's not a robot. He's expected <laughs> to resume his program. In about two weeks, uh, the injury actually occurred while he was doing the dishes and just thinking about your, your grill situation and day-to-day hazards of, of cooking and cleaning, uh, a soapy sink full of water or dish bucket full of water actually is kind of dangerous, especially if, you know, you live with anyone and they might throw some things in that bucket. Uh, we've got a pretty good system at our house. If uh, one of us puts a knife into the sink and it's full of soapy water and you can't really see the bottom, we tell the other person that there is a very sharp knife in the sink of soapy water. So um, <laughs> that is my life tip to avoid a situation like what happened to Jose Quintana. Fortunately, it's not worse, but that sounds like a pretty significant problem given that it's a left thumb injury for a left-handed pitcher. And they had to actually go in and repair a nerve, it looks like. So the note actually says that he'll, re- he'll return to his throwing program in order to find out you know, how bad it is. 
and and where he can go from there. So, um, not good news. Uh, it is good news for Tyler Chatwood. That was just a terrible framing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jose Quintana. I'm sorry that you're hurt. Uh, Tyler Chatwood now gets a little bit more solidified as a starter. And Alec Mills, I think, would probably be their fifth starter if they needed one. And I like Alec Mills. So there's something there. I don't have Quintana very high up in my ranks. I'm not sure he's going to make the top 100. Yeah, I think he probably falls. He's in probably the 75 to 80 range on my list as I've been making some changes. He probably falls back at the top 100, maybe even out completely. I think the tricky thing about rankings and projections for this season, and this has already come up on a few of our episodes, is just that a couple of weeks, even if you only miss two weeks, that's a huge deal. And you can't wait for everyone. You can't wait for prospects to get the opportunity. You can't wait for injured players to come back. You can't wait for playing time to start falling the way you need it to with kind of speculative late darts. So I just think you go from being a late round consideration to undraftable very easily. And it could be a thumb injury. It could be a hamstring. It could be a quad. You know, it just it leaves us in this quick decision making position that ordinarily we're not really in. Yeah, and it is getting really crowded at the back end. It's something that's going to come up in the in when we talk about the draft. But, you know, it's also something that came up in our roundtable that's going to come tomorrow. One of the questions was, you know, who were some of the players that moved the furthest? It was about, you know, moving people the furthest and what types of players we move the furthest. Um, and I was like, I think it was in regards to the DH question in particular. And I, I kind of go back to what we talked about in the last show is that they, we're talking about 300 plate appearances here. I don't think it's enough to make someone a must draft. Even Ioannis Cespedes is not necessarily a must draft. Like, I don't think he got drafted in this draft. So, mm. did he? I mean, control F. No, not he, he didn't not get there. selected. He did not no. get selected, and so I mean, it's a twelve-team draft, and that's that's why he, you know, he's he's probably in that sort of twelve to fifteen range. But I will say, everyone I think is coalescing around a sort of a, a somewhat established early round strategy. You know what I mean? Um, there were a lot of similarities and a lot of things that people were doing in the early rounds that I could understand, and it made a lot of sense. The back end was where people kind of did different things. Um, and we can talk about that in a second. But it is the back end where we're going to have the most trouble. You have to make decisions quickly about relievers, about starters, about prospects or, or, or Sam Hilliard types that you put on your on your bench. You're going to have to, because two weeks equals a month and a half, really. Uh, I'm just doing a simple three times. I know it's not quite that, but... I need to I need to do something simple rubric so I can be like okay it's been a week it's been three weeks yeah ha- having that process in place right just having a, a clear idea of this is what I'm looking for this is how long I have to look for it and if I don't see it I'm going to go ahead and, and make my changes uh, let's talk about the mock first we'll kind of get to the other IL moves a little bit later on I think people are pretty burnout uh, on that particular topic and. It's understandable, but it's still important enough. We should definitely get to it. But I think kind of looking at what teams were doing in this mock, there's a few weird things that happened right up top. 
Mike Trout fell to me with the fifth pick. That was weird. And it's based on the knowledge that his wife is expecting to give birth to their child during the season. And that Trout will, of course, spend time at home when that happens. And the uncertainty about how it's really going to work with him coming back to the team. Is he going to be on the paternity list and then on a restricted list for a little while and be gone for a couple of weeks? Is he going to have to come back and isolate? Those are questions that we're asking because of the pandemic and what's going on this year. And I think that to me was just kind of like a thing that I can't possibly know that. That's a thing we can guess at. We can try to figure it out. I don't think we want to totally dismiss the idea that he could miss more than a few days. And obviously, in a 60-game season, missing three to five games is a bigger deal than it would be in 162. Everybody gets that. But at the end of the day, I I don't know enough about how that situation is going to play out to pretend like I, I don't want to take Mike Trout as a top three player. And to get him at five just seemed like it was worth the risk. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering about that myself, and I think it might be overrated uh, because the concern about the um, having a child. Because in in the past, I've seen players take as little as one or two days off. Um, I don't know, and in this case scenario, I think there'd be a lot of pressure on him to not take much more than that, even more pressure than a regular season. So I kind of feel like he might miss a day or two, but so might any of the other guys in the top five. I mean, we're talking about a day or two. Um, I also wondered, I've seen some people talk about um, Christian Yelich as someone who might be streakier. You know, if you look at the top three, Yelich, Acuna, and Bellinger, these are the types of players that could hit 400 in two months. Cody Bellinger, in fact, hit 400 for the first two months of last season. It's pretty awesome. So, is it possible that that um, you know people are, are are throwing darts at the? And it's not just darts like you're taking some nobody and making them first. You're, you're you're just saying, you know, of the top three or four bats in this league, you know, these are the streakier ones. So I'm going to try to take one of them. The floor is still very high. Um, Anyway, uh, Betts and Trout going 5-6 definitely um, was interesting, I thought. Yeah, so the way this draft came together, thanks to our friends over at Pitcher List for, for building it all out, it was Yellow Chikunya Bellinger, 1-3. through three. Garrett Cole went to Jason Collette at 4. That's what left me with Trout at 5. Then Mookie Betts went to Clay Link at 6. The back half of the round went to Grom, Arenado, Francisco Lindor went to you with the ninth pick. Trey Turner fell to 10. Max Scherzer went 11. And then Trevor Story went to our host, Nick Pollock, at 12. So in the first round, we didn't see starting pitching get jumped up. We just saw a couple little twists and turns. Nothing that totally jumped off the page. I remember listening to the stream that was happening on Wednesday afternoon. And when Nick had Paul Sporer on, he was talking about Nolan Arenado and how people get way too hung up on the fact that Arenado doesn't steal bases. But when you look at his year-over-year consistency in every other category, he absolutely is a first-round pick. And that got me thinking about just stolen bases as a strategy because I didn't go crazy aggressive early with guys that run. I mean, my first four hitters, Trout, Baez, Hira, and Judge in rounds one, four, five, and six. I think between Baez, Hira, and Judge, I might get a 
a handful of steals, maybe a dozen, maybe 15 in a shortened season. But clearly I was not prioritizing stolen bases, and I don't feel like that's really a problem. I mean, I think if if everybody else is chasing speed, not being aggressive with speed early might be the smart play. Yeah, but I was a little bit jealous of your speed situation compared to mine. Um, Lindor, I didn't take him because of the speed. I took him because he's well-rounded, and I, I like to take five-category guys in the first round. Um, Lindor and Trout are probably going to steal about the same, right? It, same-ish? Yeah, they're they're close. I, I mean, I Maybe would expect Lindor, Lindor to get a few more. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, but then in a shortened season, that might be one or two more. Um, you know, and then I took Jordan Alvarez cause I was saying, you know, I, I just want the best bat here. And, you know, I think Jordan Alvarez, you know, could be comparable to Nolan Arenado in a couple of years in just terms of batting average homers every year. Um, and, um, and then I took Manny Machado because, uh, I saw a little weakness in third base. I saw like a little bit of a drop off. And I created a little mini run where it went Machado, Donaldson, Bryant, Suarez. Um, that, that was actually satisfying to me. I felt like I got the best third baseman out of that group. Um, and then I took Anthony Rizzo because he fell to me. And then I said, oh, crap. <laughs> I've, got like, I've got like eight steals. I mean, it's eight steals. I, I gotta, it's hard to talk about the season even. Uh, I, I was like, I just don't have enough speed. And I looked over at yours and I was like, you know, Hura, Baez, Trout, at least you were, you know, treading water better. And then I said, okay, I'm taking Robles the next time it comes back to me. And then you took Robles. I, some- I think the Robles, the Robles pick is interesting only because I've talked obsessively about him everywhere in the last three months. Right. And generally, I don't think spending a top 75 pick on him in this season is necessarily a great idea, but I do think he kind of fits into this bucket of, of parachute players where if you need to go get that category, you need to go get steals, and you want to get them from a player whose playing time is really safe, that's what I think Robles brings. And he does bring you know, projectable growth. You see that in the bat X projection, right? Exactly. You see that the most max, projections for him. Exit velocity, yeah. his, his hard hit angle. So then I said, well, you know what? I want to get one good closer. So I got Chapman. And on the way back, um, I was like, okay, I don't have an outfielder yet. And Robert makes sense. Uh, but I put Robert in a group with Kane um, and some other speed, uh, like some sp- other speed offerings that I thought uh, might be there on the way back. So I took Ozuna instead. And then you took Robert. I was like, God mm-hmm. damn, now I'm chasing steals. And, by the way, by the time I got down there, uh, I didn't have a second baseman, and I missed out on Moustakis and LeMayhew uh, around a turn where I thought, okay, you know, I'll take Chapman here because I'll take Moustakis and LeMayhew when, on the way back, and they both got bing-binged. Um, so what I came out of this feeling was uh, steals are a B, and second base is also a B. I think second base is top-heavy, and that was illustrated really well by Owen Poindexter a while back. It was in his piece that he wrote this winter for The Athletic. But I think the depth options at second base are, are viable. Like it, it's, not a, it's not a total 
crap show. If you do wait, I just think you get a nice advantage over the rest of the league by prioritizing. The other thing that was was really strange, though, is how much first base drops off, even in a 12-team league. And I think part of the reason for that is a lot of teams will platoon that spot, and the more I think about a 60-game season, the less I want to deal with guys that are going to sit against lefties, right? Because you're losing maybe 15 to 20 starts, depending on the matchups and how that falls. So you're losing maybe a quarter or a third of the possible playing time in those situations. And over 162, you know, those guys can be managed a bit differently. They can end up playing a bit more than expected because of injuries, but less time for that to play out. I just, I don't want to be stuck with those guys going four or five times a week instead of six or seven. And I kind of regret it because you were talking about that third baseman run, Machado, Donaldson, Bryant, Suarez. That was in the fifth round of this 12-team league. I took Keston Hira with my pick before that happened, and the alternatives were Machado, Donaldson, Bryant, Suarez. Those were all guys that I was kind of thinking about. The reason well, I, I went Hira, Hira is because... So. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, so I mean, I sniped you, and I think I got the Welsh, too. I think the Welsh was on the stream saying that he was going to take Hira, so the timing was fine on, on Hira. I think I expected at least one of those four, probably Suarez, to come back. But because of all the time off, especially, and you didn't even, he's on the same ground as everybody else. You didn't even get Vladdy on the way back because Vladdy went two right. before you. So there was yeah. five, five third basemen went in, the, in, the, in, in 10 picks. Um, yeah, I see a little weakness. The only weakness I see in your team is in the corners. You ended up with Yuli Gurriel, Yandy Diaz, Miguel Andujar. Um and maybe Braun plays some first or something, but you know, I, it's it's an underrated weakness. I used to punt first base and just find a guy, but more and more teams are punting first base and platooning and just finding guys, and that means that because fantasy is always another level above um, what the real life teams are doing, that means that the the pool of really starting first baseman you want is shrinking. Um, and, and I'm not saying that I took Rizzo where I took him because I was worried about first base. I actually took him because he was valued in my auction values. I used ATC on the Fangraphs auction calculator. He was a $20 player, and we were picking $10 players. Yeah. So, yeah, I like I mean, I like Rizzo quite a bit this year because everyday playing time, high batting average floor. I think we've compared him maybe to like Freddie Freeman, like a, a cheaper version of Freddie Freeman, especially when you shorten up the season. I think they could end up being pretty similar in value. And Freeman goes in the second round. Rizzo goes fourth, fifth, sixth round of a lot of leagues. So I thought you got good value I with think, that pick overall. What? I think, well, here's the other thing though. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing about this is there were a couple points where I thought about first base and I, I just got kind of caught up in something else. Like I didn't have any saves yet in the 10th round. I have Ken Giles as a top five closer. So I felt like I had to go ahead and take Giles there to avoid getting completely pushed out on upper tier closers. You were, like the last, you were the last person to pick a closer, I feel like, or one of the last. There was kind of like that last hurrah. You and Spore. It was Giles, Edwin Diaz, and Brad Hand with the last few picks of the 10th round. And then Nick Anderson went to Colette before I picked in the 11th. And then Kimbrel Narisk followed that. But, but that I was am, like the last push. I am out on hand. I'm out on hand with Karinchak there and hand throwing 90 poo. Uh, I'm a little out on him. So I wanted to get above that. So I got Chapman above that. And then I grabbed Naris in the middle of that. And this is, this is where there is a segue here. 
I think no matter how deep your draft is, no matter what, like who you're drafting against, no matter what you're doing, there's always a choice about where your weakness is going to be, right? You're always making choices and that will create a weakness later. So when I took Jordan Alvarez, I did not take Ketel Marte or Jose Altuve. So I already kind of knew that I was in trouble because Keston Hira was like the only second baseman I really wanted. And then there was Muncie and Moustakis later, right? So I already knew that like the number of second basemen I wanted after taking Jordan Alvarez was going to be two or three, right? Yeah, and I, well, I think it leads into a question of where are you most comfortable having yes. that sort of risk, or where do you feel like yes. you're going to be able to find the most value during the season? And some people find it streaming starting pitchers. Some people can find it just in the pool of outfielders. Well, uh, it, it kind of it's different for everybody. It's like I, I think will, there are some structural things in the pool that make it impossible to find something, but there are some strengths you can have as someone playing your in-season management. Like you can have some strengths that are going to lead you to be better at filling some of those voids than others. Right, and and I did I did struggle with that because I do think my strengths is st- starting pitching, but I fill my bench with starting pitching um, because I wanted to say that. Um, I think saves are obvious. Like saves are obviously the thing that you can do the most in season. I, I I don't. I can't. No one will argue me off this position. You like when you look at how many saves are drafted versus how many are accrued in the, over the season. You're talking about about thirty percent of the saves are drafted. That means I agree. Agree with this. Seventy percent of saves are out there. So right. I'm not. I'm not going to fill my bench with relievers. There were a couple of people. There was one person who took five straight relievers to end the thing. And, you know, one or one of them, at least one is going to be a starter, but you know, he was like, I'm going to put all my, my darts on the bench. And, and I understand that. And it makes sense to me, but there are names that we didn't draft that will get saves. So what I wanted to do was, my two thoughts were: I'm going to create a weak. I'm gonna. I'm going to. When I took Jordan Alvarez in my head, I said, "Okay, there's gonna be. A, I'm gonna have a weakness at second, and I'm gonna have a weakness at reliever. That's that's where. And I'm gonna take my catcher late. But you know, in a 12 team league, I took Will Smith as the second to last catcher, and I'm fine with that. Um, I'm totally cool with that. So, uh, but so I was really focused on second and starting pitching, and so I took Verlander Castillo as my you know, these are my aces. I wanted to get two aces. I got. I think I got them. I took Woodruff Soroka as like two guys I really like in the middle, uh, and then I, I took endgame pitchers mostly. And so, I feel good about that decision. The second base decision, I don't feel as good about. But this is what I used my bench for was because I knew I had a second base weakness. I took Lux and Madrigal. And I just felt like I have a little bit of a steals weakness and I have a second base weakness. So let me just take two young guys that could bust out at the same position and, and sort of fill my bench that way. Um, I thought I took Senzel too. Maybe there's a little chance he plays second. Uh, there was, that was my approach. And so there was a, already in the third round, I'm creating weaknesses, but I'm going to start thinking about them and, uh, and try to mitigate those weaknesses later on. So I do have the, for the reliever point, I agree with what you're saying in terms of the number of saves that are available. Like There are a lot of undrafted saves out there. 
I think the problem or a counter argument to relying on those saves is that there's no guarantee that you're going to find them when you're bidding up against several other teams that are in the same can position. Be expensive. Right. You can over you may be forced to overpay. So you know, how do you want to handle that? I, I think this kind of goes back to decision trees and how you want to structure your team. You can choose that weakness. If you feel like you're good at being a week ahead of closer turnover and you're going to throw a couple bucks at someone right before they get that opportunity in season and you think that's something you do well, go ahead. Like Take your chances on this. I also think you don't necessarily need to draft three closers. Some people draft three. I tried to draft three in this particular league to stay out of that fray in theory. I mean, this is a mock. We're not playing it out. So, you know, behind Giles, I took Giovanni Gallegos and Will Smith, but that cost me in the form of having to chase corner bats instead. Right. And, but but look how it played out. Like, I got kind of lucky, I think. I, I don't even like Yuli Gurriel that much, but he hits in a pretty prominent spot in a good lineup. I don't Probably think they really have anyone there to push him. Yeah, he's not a platoon guy. So he kind of fits the bill of just like guy who overachieved, but boring filler guy that plays a lot and volume and lineup position are key. But had I pushed up a first baseman into that range, like there's a, there's a empty spot where I took Gallegos and Will Smith and Sal Perez. I'm looking around to both sides. There's no, first I don't baseman. think there's no first baseman in that group. There might be someone that plays multiple spots. Whose color sticker thing is a different color. I didn't really miss out on anything there. And I was able to take a, sh- a shot on two guys that, if both end up closing all season, that's a massive yeah. value gain. If only one ends up closing all the time and the other is just a dominant high leverage late inning guy, that works out fine at that price as well. Run. So I, I just yeah, I kind of felt like that was that was an okay way to go, and then I got a little bit lucky with choosing the corner as my weakness. I, I think third base is probably where I made the bigger mistake. As much as I like Yandy Ooh. Diaz, I do wonder, yeah. does he fall into the platoon trap now? Maybe he was already in it, potentially. I like where he hits in the lineup. I like his skills. But was he going to get, is he going to get platooned now that they have that extra little bit of depth? So, yeah, and I took the different approach where I didn't take relievers there, and I started taking my back-end starters and filling out my outfield. So, where you're taking Gallegos and Smith, I took Lorenzo Cain, Jose Urquidy, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Nick Senzel, Nick Madrigal, Sam Hilliard. Um, so that's that's what I was doing at that time. Um, and I did not even take a third closer. And I kind of came to this realization when uh, around the time I took Sam Hilliard uh, and Will Smith, which is the 19th and 20th round, I only had three three or four more bench slots left when I'm making these decisions. And I looked at my reliever queue in the queue and I had like 15 relievers and I was just like, you know what? Five of these, six of these, seven of these are not going to even get drafted. So I'll just gonna pretend like those, those are my first pickups. I'm going to leave them out there. And if I, if someone goes on the DL or, or something happens or I want to drop one of these pitchers, like I'll go get a reliever next. And these are the types of players that didn't get drafted that I, uh, that I think could be closers fairly soon. Trevor Rosenthal, who will never get drafted in any league and is my last pick in some of my deepest leagues. But less than that, uh, Jose Alvarado, Diego Castillo. Oh, is my queue still open? That'd be pretty cool. 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> Michael Givens was not drafted. Uh, Corey Kniebel was not drafted. Matt Barnes, Jordan Hicks. So all those guys are still out there. And Michael Givens is like ostensibly the closer to begin the year. If I wanted to make that, if I wanted to make that move right now, I could, I could do it. Um, and in the meantime, I got Spencer Turnbull, Austin Voth, Griffin Canning. Um, and, you know, if Canning goes back down again, uh, I'll go pick up Michael Givens. Now I have three closers. That's, that's, that was my thinking. Uh, but uh, it is interesting to kind of think that your end game could be decided by your third pick. Yeah. I mean, I kind of went old and boring for most of my reserve picks other than Anduhar in the 19th. And I think he's probably UT only in a lot of leagues to begin the season. So just keep that in mind. If, if you're going to draft him late, just look and see where he fits. This league has two utility spots. It doesn't have a corner and a middle. So that changed the thinking too. Just looking at the balance between 10 active hitter spots versus nine active pitcher spots. That made me a little bit more aggressive with pitching early and in the middle than I would have been if we had a 14 to nine split. Um, but I also, you know, I, Masahiro Tanaka, Garrett Richards, Gregory Polanco, Ryan Braun, that that entire group of players is kind of old and boring at this point. Polanco is just more of an injury bounce back sort mm. of consideration. But the thing that drew me to both Polanco and Braun, I guess there were two things. The first was the uncertainty about a trout absence, the health of Aaron Judge, who I took in the sixth. I mean, he's a, a pure problem player. Um, I expect Robles and, and Luis Robert to be my third outfielder and my first utility constantly for the speed that I'm going to need from them. But I figure between Judge's risk and Trout's risk, I wanted to have a little bit more playing time in the outfield already at my disposal. And I thought with Polanco and Braun in particular, I mean, the universal DH is actually good for both in a weird way, not, not because the Pirates are loaded and they weren't going to play Polanco, but if they want to rest his shoulder, they can put him in the outfield half the time and DH him half the time and protect him a little bit. Uh, both of those guys are going to have prominent spots in their respective lineups. So lineup position really started to look good to me as we were moving through the later rounds, especially trying to look for three, four, five hitters who might get a ton of playing time. And, and even if the skills are a notch below where they used to be, they're still at a level that plays pretty well in a 12 team format. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and those types of players are traditionally undervalued in most drafts that I see, especially industry drafts, because industry drafts, there's a little bit of getting your guy, you know, and putting your stamp on that guy. There was somebody who tweeted about, you know, when you think of an analyst, who's the name you think of? And somebody said Spencer Turnbull for me. So I said, Alex Cobb, thank you very much. <laughs> I said, no, oh, I don't want man. that. Um, and so to me, like, uh, not to be too cynical, but it also was fine for me to go Turnbull Voth Canning at the end to be like, hey, I know someone's going to look at this draft and look at Eno Saris and look at his light pitchers. So, hey, guys, these are my light pitchers. You know, uh, these are the kinds of guys I like. So, uh, you know, that was part of it. But then also I was thinking that um, outfield is very interesting. I chose at one point for outfield to be my weakness. Um, I think Marzell Azuna as a number one is fine and him going to one of the better hitting parks he's ever played. And I think I'm, I'm sort of excited to see what he does this year. Uh, but obviously a starting outfield of Azuna, Kane and Gurriel is a bit of a weakness. That's why I took Senzel and, and Hilliard later as, as sort of upside picks. Um, but um, if you pick near the back end of the first round, you're very likely to be put in the position where, 
um, outfield is your weakness. I'm just looking at the way this works because the top five outfielders, you know, Yelich, Acuna, Bellinger, Trout, and Betts go in the very front of the first round, right? So that means you're if you're in the back end of the first round, you're not likely to pick a first base, an outfielder unless you're the team that gets Soto. And I considered Soto against Lindor, actually, but he didn't get back to me as a second pick. So that means there's going to be a break and there's a bit of a tear there after Soto uh, unless you really want to put Harper and Martinez there. But in this draft and in a lot of drafts, Harper and Martinez end up going to guys that took outfielders in the first round, you know, <laughs> like going at the beginning mm-hmm. part of the thing again. And Starling Marte in the third starts going before you before I even got to it. So I didn't even really have a choice. Uh, there was not there's only one choice of an outfielder that I was considering at my pick that I didn't take. You know what I'm saying? That choice was Jordan yeah. Alvarez over George Springer, which I'm actually cool with. Given their ages, given what's going on, you know, I, I'm cool with taking you down there. But, you know, that was the one time I could have maybe taken a, a first outfielder instead of Jonathan Alvarez. Uh, maybe you can poo-poo that pick. But other than that, there wasn't a time when I really had an outfielder that I, that I, that I was considering and didn't take. It, it, it got to the eighth round where I had to be like, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take Ozuna here because it's getting a little ridiculous. <laughs> So I, I think that, and if you look around, the uh, me, uh, Casey, Bubba, Melchior, Pollock, um, you know, and Spore, if you look at the first ten rounds or, or the first eight rounds, I, I was so I took Ozuna last. Uh, Casey Bubba didn't have an outfielder by the eighth round. He's he's the guy who's picking after me in ten, right? Al Melchior only had Springer. Nick Pollock had Soto and Meadows, and Spore only had Loriano. So. If you're picking in the back end of the first round, consider that outfield might be a weakness for you, which I'm totally fine with. And that I think there's a lot of late outfielders that are exciting. But consider that and think about your your end game outfielders then. I think playing in a league where you only have to use three active outfielders in the lineup makes that even more viable too. Like you can find three that play a lot that do almost anything. Like I think that's the thing I like about the outfield pool most years is that if you need some cheap late speed, yeah. there's probably an older player like a Lorenzo Kane who provides that. He went in the 13th round uh, to you in this draft. Uh, KC Bubba got Byron Buxton in the 13th. And that's um, you know, that's a little bit that was a little bit bad for me because I had the second base and outfield problem. So I took Lux and I had Mercado, Kane, and Buxton as targets, and I was hoping to get two out of the three, and I got one because Mercado went right after Lux, and when I took Kane, Buxton went right after him. So that was a, a little bit annoying. I'd hoped that Buxton would come back to me. I wonder if I'd taken Buxton if Kane would have come back to me. That might have been the better choice. But, um, yeah, I do like that about outfield because imagine uh, needing steals from first base <laughs> late, you know? Imagine not, not steals good from to third have base that. late, you know? <laughs> um, or needing, like, a really big power option even from second base late because the second base sleepers are Lux, BGO, Arias, McMahon, Wong, Madrigal, Kingery, Solak. Nobody there is going to really move the needle power not power wise. I just think so much of the value of mock drafts, or now more recently, of course, with like draft and holds and satellite leagues and all the different things out there where you can actually play it out, best balls, is to see what happens if I do this, what happens if I do that, what are my what are my power options going to look like late if I go light on power, heavy on speed? What about the opposite? What if I wait on saves? What if I draft saves early? What if I 
go eight hitters in a row. Like you can kind of turn every single draft that you do into an experiment and you know, take that and kind of apply it to your, your future leagues, your more important drafts as you move through the process. And um, I'm trying to pull some of the bigger changes here. As I look at the results, like what, what seemed different to you in a broad sense about how players were treated in this mock? Do you think it was mostly a little extra premium on speed and maybe people being compared to a typical draft of 12 industry people being more aggressive with starting pitching? There were teams that waited on pitching, to be clear. I mean, Bobby Sylvester took six hitters to start before getting Kluber in the seventh. Yancey Eaton took six hitters before going Hader and Sonny Gray in seven and eight. Uh, there were plenty of different methods used. Nick Pollock's not going to take pitching very early. He went five hitters before Paddock in the sixth, which I thought was great value for Paddock. Yeah, that was great for Paddock, uh, yeah. I considered Paddock or Castillo in the fourth. Yeah, I, I thought about Paddock <laughs> I thought about Paddock in the fourth round as well, and that was with Clevenger and Kershaw already on my team. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that seemed uh, pretty aggressive, but so I, I didn't do it. I would say that you can still see it in his staff. This is the he he built the kind of staff that I used to build a lot when I was like I can find late pitching, and it's fine. But his ace is Panic. He's got Wheeler, Bumgarner, Gallon, Caleb Smith, Mitch Keller, Sean Manaya, Michael Kopech, Jordan Montgomery. Like he needs a lot of those guys to hit. You know what I mean? As much as I love him, like and I'd like a lot of those players. Like if Zach Wheeler just kind of hums along at like a four two ERA and blah blah blah. Like he doesn't really have a number two. If Madison Bumgarner doesn't take to the desert. Um, like maybe he could, um, you know, then he really needs Gallon to step up. Caleb Smith throws 90 poo again, or Mitch Keller doesn't really figure out the fastball. I don't like the Shamanaya pick at all. I love Nick Pollock. I will say it again. I love Nick Pollock. I hate the Shamanaya pick. Um, and, uh, Jordan Montgomery, Michael Kopech, like decent, uh, you know, shots in the dark at the end, but you, you will suffer if you wait on pitching, I think. And this is the major change for me as a player over the years has been to invest more in top-end starting pitching. Uh, I know that injury is a risk, and I won't go as far as taking a, a starting pitcher in the first. So I didn't get Cole like get Colette did or DeGrom like the Welsh did or Scherzer like Melchior did, but I still got Verlander or Castillo because I think that top-end pitching is worth that investment. And that was something that did stick out to me. I think that people, everybody wanted to try and get two two aces. Um, yeah, a lot of people sort of prioritized 10 out of 12 two. teams, I would say 10 out of 12 teams, or at least 9 out of 12 teams had the two-ace strategy. So Yeah, and Chris Chris Towers went Flaherty, Giolito, Glasnow, Nola in rounds three through six. He had the second pick, so he went Acuna, Rendon, and then possibly four aces. Like, yeah. I mean... I know we've expressed some concerns that you've had about Lucas Giolito on this show and, and Glass Glassnow's injury history. Risky, yeah, but, but if it he, goes right with three of the four, he's in great shape. He he kind of inspired me to take Castillo where I took him because I like what does it go? One, two, three. It goes one, two, three, four. Well, no, he didn't inspire me to, but I I was considering maybe a three ace approach. And he kind of sniped me on Glass now and Nola, so um, I did. I was aware of that for for starting pitcher thing. But yeah, I would say generally the starting pitcher go, like early goes, and then um, you know you kind of scroll down, and then like sort of ten through fifteen, um, which used to be where I started picking starting pitching back <laughs> when I started playing fantasy baseball. <laughs> 
um, now 10 through 15 becomes a place to get your reliever uh, and start uh, shoring up weaknesses. So you see a lot of speed in 10 through 15. That's where Santana, you got Robles. Um, you see uh, a lot of closers. And then, um, you know, if you didn't get a shortstop at the beginning, you start to see Anderson, Correa, Seeger, Andrews, that sort of deal. Um, so 10 through 15 becomes a kind of mid-round bat territory. Um, and then people start jumping back into late pitching. Uh, that that was the kind of uh, rhythm that I found. Yeah, there are some pretty nice pockets. like Just like we talked about with the run of third baseman late in round five, the Machado, Donaldson, Bryant, Suarez group, right through round nine, I was faced with a choice that was really hard to make. I thought there was a chance I could get both if I did it in this order. It didn't play out. I took James Paxton over Brandon Woodruff. I have Woodruff ranked a little bit higher. I thought there was a chance that I could get greedy and maybe get Woodruff coming back through in the 10th, and you made sure that that didn't happen. So I guess and, but, that's But uh, you inspired payback. a run. It's, it's always kind of fun when you inspire a run, I think. I think it says something good. It says that like you took a scarce resource and you got the best one. So right. you timed you timed the selection correctly, and you know you got the thing you will you, you took and you made other your people preference nervous. from a group, yeah, and you got everybody else to kind of follow or or just happen. Sometimes it just happens to work out that way, but you you basically got the guy you wanted from a group that you have of similarly ranked players, and then you're able to go ahead and because of all those other picks, something else you needed wasn't going off the board necessarily, right? Like yeah. because. The next four people all took starting pitchers. There's four picks that didn't pitcher. snipe love a closer, that. right? Yeah, yeah. I got my third baseman. You, you guys can all take third baseman. <laughs> right. But just, yeah, leave something a little bit better that you might need for you at your next turn. I really remember that Paxton pick because my, my perspective was I had to take Ozuna because I was having the outfield problem. And I said, that's okay. I see Berrios as someone I want, Sonny Gray, Paxton, Luzardo, and Woodruff, and Montas as like, those are pitchers I want. So it's fairly robust, right? I take Ozuna, and then Barrios goes three picks later. Gray goes three picks after that, and you take Paxton, and my nether regions tighten. And I'm like, oh, come on, baby, come on. It goes Paxton, Lynn, Luzardo, Montas. I'm like, oh, please give me that Woodruff, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And I did have Woodruff uh, above some of the, like way above Lance Lynn, um, and above Bauer and above some of the guys that got taken ahead of him. So I was happy to get Woodruff, and I think I did okay. It's it's okay to also get uh, at the end of a run if you think that you still got in that tier, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised that Lizardo didn't go a little earlier, but this is not a group of all NFBC players. It's a group of, of industry people, so sometimes the, the group think you see in one part of the community doesn't necessarily permeate the other. And Lizardo and Julio Urias were actually a little closer together than usual. I got Urias in the 11th, ah. and I felt pretty good about that. I saw a few uh, Rage G chats from you while this was going on. Yeah, the Rage chats were Julio Urias, uh, Luis Robert, and Keston Hira. Those are my the times that I... And Robles, actually. So the Robles-Robert one really, really screwed me. Because that's where I was hoping to get my, you know, one an outfielder for me and some speed. So, but that that yeah, the the runs are really interesting. Um, generally, I, like if I was recommending to people, I would say I think two aces early is good. Um, I think getting an ace reliever is good, um, 
And then depending on the depth of your league, you know, consider our different approaches to the back end of the, of your relief squad, um, and, and decide how you want. But, uh, end game, end game reliever and end game, like weakness position are very important. That, you know, we've even talked on this podcast how I don't love Madrigal, but in this context, he made too much sense. Yeah, I mean, he's an easy cut if you don't like what's happening, if you don't like where he's hitting in the order, if he's Nicky Lopezing to start his career. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a few ways to, to work if around Hilliard's it. If Hilliard's not the DH, you know, or not playing regularly enough for me, he's gone. So, My only fear with Hilliard, and I, I really like Sam Hilliard, is that Matt Kemp's going to be the oh, platoon partner for I can't believe that. Why are the Rockies so rocky? Why do they, they go out and get an old-ass dude? Just play the know. kids. They Rockies. had to replace Mark Reynolds in some form, so <laughs> they chose Matt Camp. Another old dude. Um, what was something that you just jogged uh, free? Um... Well, while you while you recall that, the other thing I wanted to point out is, you know, I took Aaron Judge in the sixth round, which if you put an emoji next to every pick on my upcoming rankings, Judge would just be the, the shrug emoji <laughs> because I, I don't know what to tell anybody with him. Uh, I don't think anybody outside of their medical staff really knows what's going on with his ribs and how many games he's going to play and how much risk there truly is there. I just felt like in a 12-team league, in the sixth round, that was a, a place where if I waste a pick in the sixth round of a 12-teamer, I'm pretty confident I can find quality players on the wire. I think you get to a high-stakes setting, you get to 15-team mixed leagues where the, the pool's not quite as, as nice on the on the waiver wire. I mean, obviously, at an AL-only league, there's a number for every player. I don't think Aaron Judge ends up on my team in a deeper league especially. So this was kind of an exercise in, all right, I'm going to take him here. What happens with the rest of my team? Do I feel okay about it? Oh, look Ultimately, how, I think it worked out. Look how far he fell. I mean, you took him right after Nicholas Castellanos. Like, that's okay yeah. with me. <laughs> I mean, on true talent, like Gallo went around earlier. I'd yeah. Help. We don't know. We don't know health. Stanton went around earlier. I thought Stanton in the fifth was actually good value, too. That was a Yancey Eaton. But pick. if Stanton's a good uh, round, you know, value in fifth, then Judge is great value in sixth. I think I would have Judge ahead of Stanton. I think I have them currently ranked next to each other as I keep going through. Like Every time I open it up, I look at the outfield list. I stare at that, and I just kind of blink for 20 minutes thinking about it and click over to a different position. <laughs> Leave the problem for me on the next day. <laughs> Tomorrow, you. You got this one. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a BoJack with his jury duty notice. Like, this is a problem for Friday, BoJack. And he, he, that's that's how I treat the, the Aaron Judge ranking. Here's the thing that uh, got Jog Lewis staring at Sam Hilliard. I wonder if Rockies players, Rockies hitters, are not as good of a value this year as they are in other years. And here's my reasoning. One. The NL West is a tough division. The Centrals are the better divisions. Uh, so it's a tough division. Two, if you're only playing NL West and AL West, you suddenly lost every other hitting park that you might play in. And in fact, other than Minute Maid and Dodger Stadium, you're playing in pitcher's parks. 
It's true. When you're not home. Um, and it's hard to go on the road in Colorado anyway right. because of VMI and air density and a bunch of different things that we've discussed. The altitude, of course. Yeah. I mean, all those factors. The ball just moves differently. I don't think I have a three. Well, two's probably good <laughs> enough now. So... <laughs> related point and I thought about this just from a simple shorter season high variance situation are you any more likely to take chances on Colorado's pitchers or even just Herman Marquez or John Gray just a couple of the guys that you like I mean does that change any of your thinking with I think how you I think I might players? I think I might uh, push Herman Marquez a little bit uh, there's still two good breaking balls and a good fastball and especially in daily leagues, the ability to maybe use him uh, two-thirds of the time. You know, be judicious in the home starts. Try to, you know, do it against some weaker offenses. Or do it on a day when the opposing team just flew into Colorado. Maybe if it's early in the series. That's pretty good. Things like that you could look for. Colder days in Colorado. Early in the season. Yeah, it's cold. Cold days though, like this oh, season, yeah, right. like we're. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still like it's starting out. It's March, baby. No, it's not March. <laughs> it's... I mean, Colorado is weird. It could snow in the middle maybe later of in the season then. Yeah, September, September snowstorms. Expect the unexpected with Denver weather and 2020. Yeah, you know we things come in threes, and we had the murder hornets and coronavirus, so we haven't had the third. Why did I just say that? Why did I just say that out loud? So anyway, I expect something really weird weather-wise. Can can the desert kick up a storm where scorpions are just <laughs> in the airborne? Air. <laughs> <laughs> Dust storms like, with with scorpions in them, <laughs> like a, a scorpion haboob. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> we've we've got it. That's our third thing. <laughs> Sorry to put this on you in the desert. Sorry, people of Arizona and mostly in the Phoenix area. Like I'm, I'm not wishing this upon you. I'm just hail, hail during an Anaheim game. <laughs> hail. Uh, yeah. Wow. Wow. It's 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 scary when you think about it. Like well, the, you know this this thing. offers a bit of a natural 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 segue to the thing that we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, DL list and because. This year is so icky and gross. Of course, uh, talking about injury is going to be icky and gross. And what we're starting to see now is that players, teams are putting players on the IL and not telling us why. Um, and so we're left to infer the why. And it comes from an important place that I understand. So Marley Rivera uh, you know, helped release a statement from the league saying, because COVID-19 is not considered an employment-related injury, we will respect the privacy of the players who test positive or are under evaluation and will defer to their wishes regarding public updates about their status. Without their voluntary permission, we will not disclose any related information. This means two things. One, uh, not everyone on the COVID list is uh, positive. They could just be mo- being monitored for, si- for, for symptoms. And two, we just, we won't know um, unless they uh, unless they offer that up to us, and uh, so that makes it really icky because now we're talking about people and pe- testing positive possibly, 
like just to you know have an example and to know that this is happening right now we know that for example the blue jays went over 60 on their roster and that they have people on the il uh, so we know that some of them are the people that tested positive um, in camp and that possibly one of them is brandon drury because he was put on the 10-day dl uh, we know that the Phillies camp had a lot of people, and we saw we can see that Scott Kingery and Hector Neris were on this list of, of people that were put on the 10-day DL, um, and we don't have a corresponding injury update, so you can kind of put two and two together. I, like, I, w- I, I invite feedback. Actually, I want feedback from you as a listener uh, because I feel so icky about this, but I also understand that we are supposed to do transaction analysis and that this is valuable information and not everyone has the time to go through the transactions page for every team. They may want to know about this. Is it okay for us to talk about this if we put a, enough of a caveat on it and say we don't know this for sure and um, you know it, it's always icky to talk about this, but perhaps this person has coronavirus? So I, like, how do you want us to talk about it? I don't even, like, I'm obviously searching for language uh, when it comes to this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we could simply report the news. This is something that we've run into on, on Fantasy Baseball in 15. It's our news-based podcast that we run every weekday. It's like you, you don't want to, in one breath, talk about players opting out or getting sick, and then in the next breath, analyze what that means in a 12-team mixed league, because yeah. that doesn't seem right. I mean, I'm just speaking very candidly to everybody. I, I On the other hand, it is our job to tell people what's going on with the situation. I think every conversation we have about fantasy baseball should come by now with the obvious caveat that in a year with a damn global pandemic, we know this is not nearly as important as it right. would ordinarily be. That that should go without saying, but I also realize some people tune in for the first time, and I appreciate that, and we just want to make it very clear, like... We don't like speculating on this. I, I think it is just a, a gross part of, of the job at this point. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's just something as simple as saying, hey, this team put a handful of players on the IL in the last few days. It's undisclosed as to why. And obviously, we don't know when they're going to be back. And that's just what it is. We can do that. We can do that. But it is still sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know what I mean? It's like people understand the implications. I guess we can do that. That's 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 fine. So do we talk about it if the players talk about it? Like I think each individual player is going to have a different mindset. I'm thinking about yeah. um, the Cubs pitching coach. Tommy, Tommy Hottavy came out and he was explaining how bad his symptoms were and having to isolate from his family, his wife and his children, right? And he wanted to have his story shared so people would realize, hey, look, I'm under 40. I'm a pretty healthy person, right. and this messed me up, and this messed up my family. And I have the player. I want everyone to take it seriously. Like, there's, that's, some players are going to come out like that. Other players are going to say, this is a personal thing. I don't want to talk about it. And I had the player that talked to me that didn't necessarily want his name out there, but he was a, he's not a young player. He's a, he's a veteran, but uh, he had the four-week kind of this is pretty bad um, I can't really get on a bike yet version. And yeah, it, it, and that'll be kind of important for us to, to, to bring up. It's like the difference between two and four weeks this season is pretty big. You know, if you've got the, you know, 10 to 14 days and you're testing negative and hop back out there version. Um, and you're telling us that, then I, that seems fair game. Um, but, um, I would say just generally we can, we can report, you know, who's been put on the IL 
And as a blanket statement, I would say that the average return time will be somewhere between two and four weeks. Right. I think that there's kind of another related thought here, too. I saw, I think it was Travis Sawchick had a tweet. He was looking at the number of tests that were done as the NBA tries to get players into the bubble, uh, looking at the number of positive tests and just saying, hey, look, there's a positive test rate of, I think it was close to 3% for the number of players that went through that process. You know, this This might give us an idea of what to expect with baseball. I mean, I think we're all just kind of looking at this, trying to see if it's actually going to work, if it's actually safe. That's a huge part of this, too. It's not just like, oh, let's speculate on the situation. Right, it's not yeah. like that at all. We we don't want to do that. We're just trying to understand what is really taking place here. Um, so, you know, we're all working through it. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I would say that the, if if the average for camps, and this so far seems about average, if the average for camps is about you know, three or four at this point, I think it's still plausible to have a season Uh, because my assumptions are that those three or four are probably going to be at least uh, the hitters at least. And maybe, maybe the pitchers are at least going to be playing early in the season, right? So they're not going to miss a huge portion of the season. And two, uh, that there would hopefully be fewer positive tests as baseball brings these players into uh, their arms and hopefully does some education as to best practices in their neighborhoods and what is expected out of them and how they can stay healthy best. So I am alarmed uh, at sort of five in Philly. Um, It sounded like uh, three in Toronto, but there are other camps where it's fewer. And if it sort of stays in that kind of three to five range, I think it's still plausible to have a season. Right. And as we've said before, and I'm not trying to be crass. internally, yes. like, I'm not no, trying to no, be crass. internally, like internally, they have to have some understanding of when they can't do this. Like, right. we don't know where the, those boundaries don't are. Know where that line and, is. and that's so, I mean, that's fine that we don't at this point. But um, I, I guess one thing that made me kind of optimistic just reading Britt Garoli's piece, which if you're listening to this show Thursday afternoon, you've probably seen this piece because everybody's been sharing it and retweeting it. Uh, it's called Prohibition Baseball inside the biggest all-star game no one watched. I, I think so. Eric Cressy is a trainer, and he had several big league players uh, working out together in Palm Beach. I think at the time, groups in Florida of 50 were allowed outdoors, if I remember correctly from the story. Um, and this was a group of players. I mean, it included all sorts of different guys. Verlander, Scherzer, Kluber, Goldschmidt, Stanton several other big leaguers as well. And, you know, I think the key is that they had to distance. They had to be safe in order to not infect each other, right? It was it was a little bit of a an attempt to stay prepared to play. And maybe that should give us just a little bit of hope that, you know, working for each other, trying to keep each other safe, a group of players that is about the size of a team was able to do that in recent weeks like maybe that's a positive thing that you know gives us a little bit of hope that as more players come into the fold as health and safety are emphasized that it could be done correctly yeah yeah um and uh there was some there was some fun stuff that didn't make that uh piece because it was funny i i, I kind of ran to brit when i heard about that league and was like did you hear about this and she's like i'm already on it 
So, uh, you know, she, she deserves all the credit in the world for that, that terrific piece. Uh, one thing that, um, one little side thing that was kind of fun from that was I, I was speaking, uh, with Bryce Jarvis, uh, for my piece on him before the draft. Um, and he mentioned, um, having a little session with Max Scherzer. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the awesome little side notes to this, uh, you know, kind of all-star gathering was that there were also college kids and minor league kids that were there. Um, and just the learning process that, what, that people underwent. I mean, Richard Blyer is a, uh, a really weird pitcher if you actually look at his pitch movements and stuff. Like, he's this very strange reliever, uh, and the Orioles are amazing at, at finding these really strange relievers. But Richard Blyer was talking about being able to step in against Paul Goldschmidt and ask him how things were going. And like how he saw it and what he thought of it, his stuff. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, like, that's feedback that you're not going to get yeah. normally. Yeah. So there was a lot of learning uh, that happened there that was, that was probably pretty exciting. Uh, and just the idea that like it was happening in this Florida high school and they couldn't tell anybody because all these people would show up. I wonder if there was ever anybody that was just walking by that was like, yo, is that Justin Verlander? <laughs> yeah, is that is that Justin Verlander pitching to Giancarlo Stanton <laughs> like, on a high school diamond? Like, imagine if you were just taking a jog, like if you lived there, or you were like somehow affiliated with the school, and you're taking a jog around, and you heard a Stanton homer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you're like, what, what on earth? Yes, you know, a gunshot. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the uh, yeah, that must have been a fun a, a fun place to be. Uh, Eric Cressy is. Uh, a really smart, interesting, funny, um, you know, top of his uh, uh, top of his craft uh, trainer, I guess you might call him. Um, and uh, but he also includes uh, aspects of pitch uh, pitch design and um, like I know that Bryce Jarvis's slider took a, a big leap forward uh, while he was at Cressy's, and that was after working with Driveline. So. Um, you know, uh, Cressy's a really cool guy, and that that uh, that story is really good. You should check it out for sure. And you've got a, a big beer piece that just went up as well. Yeah, beer scouting, beer scouting, and it's funny because you know people in each market are coming back and saying like, "Oh, what about this? And what about this? What about this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I love those breweries. I didn't mean to slide anybody." Um, at some point, when you're 30 cities and 200 breweries mentioned in you're kind of like uh, it was 6,000 words you know I'm like I I could have made this 10,000 words yeah I could have added more I don't mean to slight places like four hands or narrow gauge or um, all the other places that I didn't mention um, and there were some interesting choices because I had to choose between making someone a can't miss and making someone a prospect and not every brewery kind of easily uh, finds their way into one of those two categories. Like I put Grimm in there from New York and I know Grimm is established and they're not really a top prospect. So that was a stretch, but New York in general seemed like a very robust market where most of the places that were hot have become so big that it was hard to find a true prospect. Um, so, uh, you know, not like in LA, there's a the place I mentioned called three chiefs that has a two and a half barrel system. <laughs> Uh, just a tiny system that uh, all they do is turn out like uh, imperial stouts with like crazy adjuncts in them 
and they have like two hour lines every time they do a release. Like that's a true prospect. And I, I'm proud of finding out about them. Uh, but at the same time, like I had to kind of, I had a, a mode for this piece and I had to kind of shoehorn everybody into it. Uh, and then the other piece that I've got up today is uh, a really fun one about where all the minor leaguers are going to play. And uh, my recommendation is to maybe just skip to the middle if you don't care about minor leaguers in general, because there's a guy in there, uh, Ryan Dunn from the Reds, who struck out 37% of the people he saw in high A last year uh, that was uh, now playing in his local adult league. <laughs> Uh, and I just can't imagine like going to my local adult league and stepping in the box and being like, so who's this guy again? Oh yeah. He's in high A for the reds. Here comes 93 with a, with a hammer. Ah, oh, crud. So, I mean, just imagine the times playing sports. Like I'm sure just about everybody who's played even just adult recreational sports has crossed paths with someone who used to be a really good athlete and still obviously is. That might even be just like, Oh, this guy played D1 college soccer uh-huh. and he's 48 years old now, but he's the best player on the yeah. field still. And yeah. you're just like, what? <laughs> like, that's how that's really? how the, like, that's how far the pros is from from normal adult league, right? But now and and the sheer numbers are kind of impressive. There's like basically 7,000 minor leaguers that need to play somewhere. And I haven't even counted the college players. So you're talking about what do you think we're talking about? Like 15, 20,000 kids looking for a place to play? It's going to be bad, I think. Or good. Day. Like maybe if, you're, well, if you can get a spot on your, in your local adult league, go check it out. You might be up against a D1 guy. Yeah, well, it's going to be fun to get mowed down and just completely destroyed <laughs> yeah. by players better than you. Be like a once-in-a-lifetime sort of experience. I guess I'm a little concerned that we've talked about pitching before just with pitchers not having a place to play and I, I've been openly wondering how much less valuable, or maybe maybe it's comparable. How much does it hurt to have to throw on the side compared to getting game innings in terms of workload and in terms of preventing future injuries? I, I think there's going to be a totally like wide range of what guys are able to do to kind of protect their own health in the long run. Yeah, and I did not put that in the piece because it was starting to get long too, and I didn't want to put. 8,000, 10,000 words on The Athletic on one day. But the uh, a, a, a piece that didn't make that was me talking to Kyle Bode about what it was, who it was worse for. It was worse for pitchers or hitters. And he, in fact, brought up Ryan Dunn and he brought up Reese Hines. And he brought up Reese Hines as a guy that was drafted fairly high, I think fifth, sixth round pick, went to high A, did okay, uh, hurt his hammy, didn't play the rest of the season. And so now you're talking about him having 30 or 40 plate appearances uh, for two years if he doesn't play this year. And in fact, Kyle said it was more important for the position players to play. He thought that they needed the development more. He said that basically a pitcher can get more out of training. And maybe this is his bias. He said, I'm as far on the training side as anybody can be. I do think pitchers and hitters both need to play. Uh, but I think a pitcher can get more out of a training session probably because, and I think he said this in this way too, they can uh, just dictate the action when they're playing. So if you're a pitcher and you've uh, spent a year training where you've perfected your curveball and you've perfected your changeup and you've perfected your slider as much as you can in the training session, um, you there are things you'll learn when you start playing again, but you will also maybe be ahead of the hitter who's just been taking swings off of a off of a uh, a machine. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. You really just can't simulate that as a hitter, even with some of the best technology. It's just going to fall short. Uh, Not so to that's, defense, that's a, right. Like, how do you practice defense on a high level except for have people hitting ninety five mile an hour grounders at you? Yeah, it's not pepper. uh, I'll tell you, it's not pepper. Pepper is not pepper is not going to be the same as playing. (laughs) Can you? I mean, just one last thought. Can you imagine being on the field for for BP and and just standing out at short? And you'd probably want to stand like with your heels on the grass (laughs) as much time as you can. Like, just think about how much faster the typical ball hit to the left side of the infield in batting practice would be compared to most of what you've seen in your life playing baseball at various levels. Oh, man. I remember, you know, we were trying to decide for our softball team who would play third base because almost everyone's right-handed and there there are some shots down to third base. And it came down to me or um, this uh, woman who had played uh, D1 softball. And I was like, you? <laughs> please please you and she she lost a tooth at one point oh yeah the bad hops like the, yeah, the bad fields the unmanicured infields yeah. like the extra dry problem and the unevenness i, I i've seen people take uh the bad hops above the eye too oh. like just we were lucky. We had a, an ER doc on on that team wow. who could had, get all the stuff to stitch the guy up, save him a trip to the, wow. the emergency room. He's like, "You'll be okay." <laughs> stitch him up on the field. <laughs> took, took, took care of him on the bleachers. Whoa. Got him off the field and stitched him up. He's like, That's "Yeah, we saved, we saved you a trip to the ER." <laughs> I mean, it, there's some crazy stuff that happens out there. I, I want no business of playing the left side of the infield in slow pitch softball. Like, I don't I, think I, I want to stand be in there, there against a high A guy. <laughs> No, I, I just I, my reaction time is not good enough. I, I might hands seek out the slow. local adult league just to see if it's happening here too. <laughs> I'm pretty good, like right center fielder in uh, slow pitch softball. That's that's where I belong as a, a slow guy that you know can track the ball reasonably well, but shouldn't have to do it more than once or twice. I got I got ended up the same positions as I played when I last played baseball. Uh, when I play softball, I, I play second and right. You know, <laughs> that's where you stick yeah, your. Yeah. You don't stick a, a stud there. <laughs> yeah, they're they're hiding this. I play a little first base. I'm a big target over uh, there, which right. is fine. But yeah, when when like the lefties come up, usually it seems like the lefties who play slow pitch softball are all guys that just mash the crap out of the ball. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing where I'm just like, all right, I'm I'm playing way deeper than I should because I don't want a bad hop to end me today. Like that is that is my goal is to not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not just get owned the by mouth a ball and scorched. <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, "What's wrong with you? Why are you playing back so far?" It's like I, you don't understand. Like I, I do not have good reflexes. I should not be standing here. This is not a good place for me to be uh, at this point. So, yeah, keep keep an eye on your local leagues. You might find some some minor leaguers just getting some work in this summer in places where those leagues are actually happening. I hope everybody out there has a a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. Check out Eno's Peace. Lots of beer recommendations in that. Plenty of beer recommendations on this show if you scroll back through the archives, of course. Uh, I think I mentioned Bodum from Half Acre in Chicago. I'll have a few of those. Probably have a few fantasy factories from Carbon 4 with me uh, this weekend. And uh, good luck to you, Eno, as you try to get that grill up and running. Man, that that has jumped to the top of my list suddenly. So... (laughs) 
that's about lunchtime yeah. uh, for you anyway. Uh, give Eno a follow on Twitter at Eno Saris. Find me at Derek Van Riper. You can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. You can email us rates and barrels at theathletic.com. As promised, we're going to get to rankings. We've got new rankings coming out very soon, so our Tuesday episode will really start to dive into those extensively. That's going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.